0: This is the Scott Bradley Show Podcast.
1: Next Wednesday, July 5th, at This Ain't Hollywood, which is on James North, just north of Barton, there will be the Hamilton City Air Guitar Championships. Yes, you heard that right. The Air Guitar Championships. And this is not just like a little local thing to do that we're gathering a few people around to have... People pretend to play guitar. If you win the Hamilton Air Guitar Competition, you go to the Nationals. I'm serious. You go to the Nationals. And if you win the Nationals, they will fly you and pay all your expenses, I'm told, for you to go to the World Championships in August in Finland. And all this time, you did not even know there was such a thing as a truly real world-sanctioned air guitar competition. Tim Evans is the chief executive airfacer, he calls himself. Oh, I love that. Of Air Guitar Canada. He joins me now. Tim, thanks for doing this tonight.
0: <laughs> yo yo, Scott. There
1: you go, <laughs> yeah, there you go. see? <laughs> this is a real thing? There really is like a real air guitar championship? It,
0: yeah, it's real. It's a real thing that does fake stuff. So yeah, it's uh, it's, it's it's real. It's it's Pretty uh, insane, um, but insane in the good way. Yeah.
1: How many people when you when when you explain this to people, how many people that you talk to are really surprised or give you the double take when you when they say like this? You're you're telling the truth. This really exists.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, and the funny thing is, it's existed for like this is the 22nd year of world really air, air guitar. Yeah, um, and this is like the fourth year that Canada has had it, like an official body um, running competitions. But it's the first time that, that we've, you know, ventured into, into, it. it's kind of weird that it's taken us this long, but to, to set one up in Hamilton, because I think Hamilton is pretty much, you know, well-suited to, to rocking the invisible guitar pretty well. I mean, I, I, it, it's kind of a shock that we haven't been there sooner.
1: I would really hope that uh, that a few people around here are going to do some teenage head. Um, you know <laughs> yeah. there's a few other bands pick you know maybe Arkell's monster truck. Monster truck. From, see monster truck would be perfect, right? <laughs> um, this is though this is one of the great things about this is and I love about this this is the great equalizer because you can actually compete in this with zero talent, yeah. zero skills, no musical ability whatsoever. You just got to get up on stage and kind of lose your mind a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean you gotta love the music. I think that's the first piece, right? You got to you have to love it. Um, yeah, you know, we have had guitarists who have who have done the air guitar and, and it's actually not, you know, not too far off what they what they do when they visualize themselves, you know, sort of playing a concert or, you know, what they what they might dream about at night, you know. But um but for all of us who always wanted to be rock stars you know, um, this is this is your you know your one minute of uh, of fame that you can you can jump on stage and rock out to your favorite track and and then uh, and then leave it all behind because you know <laughs> um, you know it, it's you don't doesn't really take any skill and the than, instrument
1: yeah and the instrument costs a lot less than a vintage Les Paul
0: yeah you can't lose it no one can steal it from you you know they won't <laughs> take it out of your van late at night when you're parked and a gig or whatever? I've so, actually uh, had
1: that happen, by the way. I, um, once upon a time had a bass that was in my guitar, in my car, and it was stolen. So you, you touched on a very sore point there. Thanks for that. But, um, I'm but I'm sure, no, but I'm sure I'm not the only one. You're absolutely right. This is, uh, this is a lot safer. We have, I mean, as I said, everyone's done this, right? Everybody has to some degree or another done air guitar. Uh, how, can you, do you know the history of how it? Someone actually came around to the idea that we should have a real sanctioned competition for this. Do you know the background you, story to it?
0: Yeah, totally. It was. It, it basically it started as a bit of a joke in Finland. There was a bunch of university students who shocker, um, yeah, who uh, you know were probably uh, drinking too much uh, vodka, but shocker uh, again. Yeah, but they they basically I, I I you know their 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 thought was you know what a what a way to have fun but also to maybe deliver a bit of a message and so the message they they created back in the day 22 years ago was that if you're holding an air guitar you can't be holding a gun and so they used it as a bit of a soft protest against war and violence and all the bad things in the world right so that you know nothing could be farther from hurting somebody than by getting up on stage and you know, rocking out to your favorite tunes.
1: Uh, you know, that's good. And, and I know that this time, at least, I don't know if the whole, if all of them are certainly the one in Hamilton, the proceeds, at least some of them go to Right to Play, which is a great organization.
0: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, Canada is one of the few regions in the world that actually uses air guitar as a means for raising money for charity. We, we basically um, take all of the money that we make from all of our events, and other than the flight that we, you know, we have to send somebody to Finland, all that other money goes to, Goes to charity, and so far, after three years, we've been able to generate about ten thousand dollars, which is pretty good, you know. That's a lot of us great
1: That that, that's very cool. So, what is you? You've done this, but you've done it before too, right? You've done you've you've participated.
0: Oh yeah, totally. All right. I mean, like, as I kind of have to lead, you know, by by doing. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's the thing. It's 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 kind of easy, you know, if you love music and you and you like guitar and you don't mind, you know, having fun in front of a bunch of strangers, then, hey, you know, it's, uh, it's no big deal. And the crowd's awesome. I mean, like, the crowd will cheer for anybody. You know, you could be the worst air guitarist in the world. And the crowd <laughs> how will so you, you for getting up there. Exactly how, how could how you, you actually
1: tell? determine if you were the worst air guitarist in the world?
0: Well, they do have criteria. They do have criteria. So there's, like, the technical, like, does it look like you're playing it? There's the stage persona, like, do you put on a bit of a, an act? Then there's the, the airness.
1: Uh, what does that mean?
0: <laughs> we all know. Don't you know what airness means, don't you? No, it, it, it's the je ne sais quoi of air guitar. It's like the, it's that moment where, you know, the people who are watching you can't tell uh, the difference between the act of, of mime and mimicry and the sound that's coming from the speakers, right? So it's that moment of suspended disbelief, right? So that's earnestness.
1: Okay, so what is the secret then to winning one, or at least not even forget winning for a second. I mean, some people might really go into this to try and win a trip to Finland and be serious, but for most oh. people who get up there just to have a good time, exactly. what, what's the secret to being a good air guitarist?
0: Um, you know what? Just have fun. Don't think, just rock.
1: Uh, but that's but- got to start with that, right? You've got to have a good song.
0: Yeah, you've got to have the crowd into fun. it. Well, the, the nice thing about it is we do actually bring a selection of about 50 tracks that have already been pre-cut to the one minute. Okay. And uh, we even have, like, costumes that we bring to the event, like in case people want to, you know... Put on a mask and be a little bit more anonymous, or just need a little extra something. And the other thing too is that Collective Arts is our sponsor, and they make sure that people have some free beer to help out with. The that, doesn't so. that doesn't hurt.
1: That doesn't hurt.
0: So all these things all together, and the idea that the money goes to charity is actually a pretty good, you know, argument for getting up there and having a good time.
1: Right? Do you need so, to rehearse?
0: D- d- should you rehearse if you if you want to do well? Yeah, you know, like every so often you want to have a couple of moves in your bag, you know, like, you know, where you throw the guitar in the air, or you play it with your teeth, or you, you know, play it behind your head. And and one minute comes and goes really fast. So you kind of have to, you know, think about, hey, when am I going to do that move? When am I going to do that move? Or how am I going to, you know, when am I going to do that big jump that I've been planning on doing? You know, so there's a little bit of that. And then other people, they just let the energy take them, right? They, they, they have that song that they love and then they just, they just go. They hit the on button and then boom, they're exploding out, out, you know, with the music, and, and um, you know, we've had a lot of people come in last minute, you know, register the night of, and basically walk away with the prize. they go to Toronto. We had one guy do that, and he went all the way to Finland in our first year of doing the competition, and uh, he was amazing. He ended up coming up fifth in the world. It was just a natural.
1: That's not bad. That's, okay, yeah. so, so help me work through this then, Tim. Okay, I'm going to, let's say I'm going to show up, and I'm going to uh, try and put this on. Help, grade me. What, what are the things? I'm going to give you a bunch of famous rock moves. <laughs> you tell me whether this is going to work with air guitar or not work, and sort of how good it would might work with air guitar. Probably the most famous rock and roll move of all time: Chuck Berry's Duck Walk. Do you yeah, see, do yeah. you see that one showing up occasionally?
0: Every so often, but you need you almost need like the right song for it, right? Like almost the songs themselves call for certain moves, right? So, like, I wouldn't, you know throw a windmill in the middle of like, a really intricate solo you know for example right because that's going to hurt your technical skill right sure you threw a windmill in there that's pretty cool but you know it doesn't really jive with the sound that's coming out of the speakers right so you gotta you gotta sort of uh tailor your tailor your moves to the music that's playing
1: that was going to be the was next was. one was pete townsend's windmill but you've already touched on that one all right uh, michael j fox from back to the future lying on his back spinning around while playing the guitar that's a classic
0: yeah, th- those are great. Those are good finishers, you know? Like, those are great moments at the at the very end when, you know, you don't have to get up again.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Although, it is an air guitar. You could use your hands for that split second, and, you know, who's going to really notice?
0: Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Or throw the guitar in the air, get up, and then catch it. You know, yeah, There's lo- there's lots of ways that you can... You can, uh, you know, skin the cat in this one. But, uh, yeah, the biggest thing is that you, we just don't want anybody to feel like, you know, that they shouldn't or they oughtn't. We have a 74-year-old who's going to be there in Hamilton, who's basically driving himself in from Toronto because he loves air guitar so much, and he just wants to, you know, welcome Hamilton to this thing that that, that he does. And so he's, he's participating. He's going to be there. He's going to show that anybody can air guitar. Um, we've had nuclear physicists. You know, air guitar. We've had you know um, six month pregnant women who air guitar, you know, with a giant baby bump and like you know, rock out on stage. So it really is for anybody.
1: Tell and me, tell want... me that, tell me that that contestant didn't play to like a virgin.
0: <laughs> it was shook me all night long. Oh well, <laughs> my ACDC. <laughs>
1: That's far more appropriate. Yes, thank you.
0: Uh. <laughs> it was the conception rather than the delivery. <laughs>
1: But and honestly, not that not that people are making fun, but have are there occasionally those that get up there and they are they're pleasant to watch because they're so bad?
0: Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah I mean, and and that's and that's kind of the fun is that it only lasts one minute. So, like, sure. How for, much damage um, can
1: you do somebody, in a minute?
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, like, well, yeah, there's a lot of damage that can be done. We, <laughs> that's why we have waivers, you know, like people have to sign off on on their lives so they don't, you know. Uh, hurt themselves or others, you know that sort of thing. But, uh, but, but generally, yeah, I know it's 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 a really uh, fun and inclusive thing. And, um, and yeah, if you're really good at it, hey, you know, go to Finland, win Canada the gold. It's never happened before. Canada's never won the big prize out in Finland. So we're we're on the hunt, man. We want to get the best. But we also want to have fun with everybody else.
1: Well, that's because every time we go to Finland, we have someone show up and do a Gordon Lightfoot air guitar. And that's just, there's just no energy in that. I mean, it's great music, but, you know, it's not going to win.
2: Yeah,
1: that's right. Uh, Tim, if people wanted to do this, it is next Wednesday. It is at this ain't Hollywood. It's, uh, I think, 7 o'clock. Is that right? Do you know?
0: Uh, the doors are at yeah. 8.
1: The doors are at 8. And people, if they wanted to, as you say, they can just sign up and, and compete that night
0: regardless? Yeah, I mean, I obviously as an organizer you'd love to have people sign up in advance, right? It's always cool to know what you, you know, you can help them with their song, you can give them a little bit of advice. So, I really, you know, I encourage people to go to the website to sign up and um and then I'll be in touch with them about, you know, what it what it looks like and how it's going to go down. And we have a lot of songs that we can we can help people with. But yeah, the worst, you know, the worst case scenario is you know, it's not a worst case scenario, it's a great scenario is that they show up at night, they're intrigued, they're inspired, they watch and they, you know, win some prizes. We have a, a local uh gift shop that uh, they're called lamb they're like up the street from the saint hollywood and they've given us a bunch of gift certificates nice. They give out to people for doing this so like you know you can win something you can be part of a charitable thing you know people ride bikes they like you know shave their heads they you know dump cold buckets of water on them we do air guitar and uh, you know why not
1: It is. uh, I was thinking about this. Neil Peart was from Rush, the drummer, great drummer, maybe the best drummer ever, was born in Hamilton. I was thinking, why don't they have an air drum competition as well? And then it dawned on me, why not? Because every single person who comes up on stage will want to do In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. And so where's the fun in that? Just do it all together at one and then... uh, Tim, listen, I yeah. uh, appreciate it. Uh, Tim Evans, Chief Executive Air officer of Air Guitar Canada. What's the website called, by the way, for your... It's, yeah,
0: it's uh, www.airguitarcanada.org.
1: Simple enough. Tim, really appreciate the time. Good luck Wednesday.
0: Thanks, Scott. Hope to see you there.
1: That is, uh, it sounds like it actually sounds like an awful lot of fun. Will, you, um, you just pulled this thing up. Let me just open it up here. The top 10 air guitar songs of all time. I have no idea. Okay, so number 10, I asked about the Duck Walk with Johnny B. Good, or with uh, with Chuck Berry. Johnny B. Good is, a, is number 10 on the list. Beastie Boys, Fight Fear Right. The Who, Baba O'Reilly. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Aerosmith, Run DMC, Walk This Way. Obviously, right? Uh, Boston, More Than a Feeling. Love that song. Leonard Skinner, Free Bird, although that one's like 17 minutes long. The Trogs Wild Thing. All right. ACDC, You Shook Me All Night Long. And I don't, under, I don't believe the rules say you have to be six months pregnant to do that one in the air guitar contest. Jimi Hendrix, Foxy Lady, and Layla, Derek and the Dominoes. Hmm. it's a good list. Uh, next Wednesday, July 5th, This Ain't Hollywood, which is on James By, just north of Barton, if you are interested.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights
1: from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Now is the time on the show when we are going to blow your mind. We are, we are going to make your head just explode right now because we are going to take math. Math. The stuff that apparently here in Hamilton, according to that series in the spec this week, apparently we're really bad at math. We're going to take math and we are going to take English and writing, creative writing, creative thought, and we are going to blend them together. Who does that? Well, I'm telling you my next guest, has done that. He has undertaken a statistical analysis of literature. It's a fusion of math and writing, a little of this, a little of that. I didn't even know this kind of thing was possible. His name is Ben Blatt. He's a writer and a statistician. His new book is called Nabokov's Favorite Word is Mauve, What the Numbers Reveal About the Classics, Best Sellers, and Our Own Writing. Ben joins me now. Ben, thanks for doing this tonight.
3: Hey, great to talk to you.
1: Um, before we get to this book, I do want to say this right off the top because I hadn't even put two and two together, Ben, but last summer when I was going to be sitting out by the pool, I bought this book on Kobo and I, it looked good. It turned out to be a great book. It was called I Don't Care If We Never Get Back. It was about two friends who set out to go to see every pitch of Major League Games 30 games in 30 major league stadiums in 30 days. It was one of the best sports books I've read, and um, it dawned on me today as I'm getting ready. You wrote that, too. It was a great book.
3: Well, yeah, thanks for those kinds of words, really. Both of the books are very different, one about sports, one about literature. But both are kind of going, you know, over the top in the analysis Uh, and the deep dive, especially through the numbers, through given topics.
1: Well, if people are looking for a really fun, before we get into this one, if people are looking for just a really fun, lighthearted, good read this summer, especially if they're a baseball fan, even if they're not, um, I don't care if we never get back. Look it up. It's a a terrific, terrific book, and I'm not blowing smoke. I, I, I didn't even realize at first, again, that it was you coming on, but I loved that book. It was a great job. Let's get on to this new one, though. Because this is also, as you say, about math and data and numbers. You set out in this one, you went to the world of literature, and you set out to... What, what exactly did you set out to do? What was the goal when you got started on this one?
3: Right. See, so, you know, I'm a big fan of literature and books, like many people, but I kind of always see this disconnect between how people talk about you know, the craft of writing and how they actually write. So, for example, Stephen King, one of my favorite authors, says in his book on writing, he advises, "Do not use ly adverbs. Say he sprinted instead of he quickly ran." But you know, he says this advice. Does he actually follow his own advice? What about an author like Hemingway, who's known to be concise, or an author like J.K. Rowling or El James or whoever? And I just wanted to see, you know, these are something very easily testable. If you counted all five million rows, all five million words. Stephen king ever wrote does he follow his own advice what about all these other great books and there seemed to be a need to kind of look at writing and books kind of thoughts that anyone who's ever sat down and read or thought about writing has ever considered and look at them in a bit more analytical uh way
1: and yet ben it's 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 a unique thought process to think i'm going to look at literature through math I mean, I don't know if I'm assuming other people may have done something like this. I can't think of it, though. I mean, was it an obvious one for you, or was it one of those things you're lying in bed and the light bulb goes on in your brain one night and says, hey, I can do math on this?
3: Uh, definitely a bit of the second part. You know, I've always, you know, my education suffers through statistics, but it's always about applying to something else. and kind of similar, you know. You know, decades ago, people realized, hey, you know, baseball and all these other sports have all these numbers. And data points laying around, and if we just kind of apply some basic, basic thoughts to it, we can actually learn a lot about how these things interact, and we can learn a lot of things uh, through the numbers. And kind of with books, you know, every book is, you know, hundreds, thousands of words, thousands of chapters or whatnot, and, uh, you know, I just wanted to kind of answer a basic question. Should you actually use certain words? Are there some words that certain authors use more than other? Are there kind of trends that separate or bring together popular books and uh, no one had really in my mind kind of looked at kind of these very basic questions from a mathematical point of view
1: so let's start going through some of these things that you touched on and we'll start with one you just referred to where you talk about do certain authors use certain words or have favorite words do they use them more often than other words you refer to them as cinnamon words why why does it mean that why where's the idea of a cinnamon word what does that mean and what are they
3: so I was reading a kind of a, a, small, a book that had a collection of just short interviews with other authors, uh, and Ray Bradbury, author of Fahrenheit 451, said, my favorite word is cinnamon because it reminds me of my grandmother's pantry, uh, and I just like to go in there and, you know, smell the pantry. Um, so he said it was his favorite word. He did necessarily say it's a word that he used a lot, but I wanted to know, does this word that he has this emotional attachment to translate into his books, and he can, since he said his grandmother's pantry was the reason for this uh, liking of the word, what about just kind of other words, you know, just like pepper, peppermint, citrus, lemon, anything else you could find in the pantry, really? So I went through, and cinnamon was, in fact, the word that he uses about ten times more than you'd find in standard English, much, much more than any other author and, you know, he uses licorice and kind of anything that you may find in a pantry <laughs> and any smell word at an extreme rate. Uh, so that kind of left with a point, you know, Ray Bradbury said this was his favorite word that turned out statistically it really was. Um, what if we just kind of applied the same methodology to all these other authors looking at words that not necessarily is the word that each author uses the most, because that would be very kind of boring words, but the words that they use most in comparison to kind of standard English.
1: And... When I'm thinking of Ray Bradbury, and you may have thought the same thing, not a guy that automatically the word cinnamon you would think is going to show up anywhere in his writing. I mean, what reason would he have for using that word, period? So it's an interesting thing, as you say. There's a a point of reference in his life, and then you can find it over and over again in his writing.
3: Right, yeah. And you have authors, you know, that cinnamon and all these small words are not plot-driven in any way in any of his books. Um, You have an author like Jane Austen and her favorite words. I think we're kind of like civility. I think civility was number one. You get an author named John Updike, uh, who's got a bit more rough around the edges, and I won't repeat them on the air, because <laughs> all of his cinnamon words were swear words or curse words. Uh So kind of just going down the list of these, you know, 100 authors, whether it be Pulitzer Prize winners or New York Times bestsellers, you kind of get a small... A small slice of their personality in their
1: writing. Well, here, so you mentioned Jane Austen. You, here's the the three that you had listed of her favorites: civility, fancying, and imprudence. Which, of course, fits in perfectly with Jane Austen. I, I you know, I, I can't think of any three. I mean, I don't know other Jane Austen words, but those fit perfectly with her. But I pulled up a few other names here because thought these were great, and I don't know if you know these off the top of your head. I have them in front of me, but uh, Ian Fleming, who of course wrote the James Bonds uh, James Bond books. Lavatory trouser and spangled. Why spangled?
3: That I do not know. That could be, uh, you know, a bit of a mystery that maybe a James Bond fan would have to answer. <laughs> um, I did my best to kind of go through and remove any words that was, you know, a simple, uh, sure. you know, explanation between British or American or Canadian or whatnot. Uh, but yeah, there's some words that kind of jump out at you, and then some words were are a bit more puzzling uh, until you dive deep into this specific word. Well, one of the obvious ones, I
1: pulled up J.K. Rowling. Uh, now, mm-hmm. I mean, almost everything, maybe, has J.K. Rowling written a lot of other stuff beyond the Harry Potter series?
3: So she has written some other mystery novels, but I believe for the purposes of, uh, uh, for the purposes of my book when I was examining J.K. Rowling, because everyone knows her for Harry Potter, I contra- I constrained her bibliography to the seven Harry Potter uh, books
1: because because it makes sense because her three cinnamon words are wand wizard and potion ca- kind of fits in right. and uh, and then a, a, one other one that I'll throw out here uh, Dan Brown who of course is known for um, what was Dan Brown's series the, uh, oh, the uh, Robert Langdon novels
3: thanks da Vinci yes Code.
1: Da Vinci Code thank you a Grail Masonic and pyramid like fits in perfectly with that kind of stuff so it, those kind of things they make sense that um, that those would be that those would be there. So you start there, or maybe you don't start there, but there's where we're going to start with cinemores. These are the words that show up repeatedly in author's work. Then you go the next step and you start looking at cliches. Now, before we get to who are the worst offenders with cliches or the least worst offenders, how did you determine what exactly qualified as a cliché?
3: So, you know, a cliché, you know, is a bit subjective, a bit arbitrary, and there are certainly things that could appear in a novel where you could say, you know, the entire plot uh, was a cliche, just because a boy and a girl <laughs> or whatever. Stuff, something like sure, that. Okay. But for the purposes of this test and kind of being, you know, uh, as fair and you know, removing myself as much as possible, I looked at what I call cliches of the pen, which are just kind of like common phrases like uh, "here to save the day," like "name of the game," La La Land, uh, "we go right. no home." Kind of just like cliche stock phrases. And specifically to take my own hands out of the equation, I used. Uh, book called The Dictionary of Clichés, which was compiled by uh, an author named Christine Hammer, which is just 4,000 common phrases that she has considered, you know, commonly or historically to be clichés. So I took these 4,000 clichés and, you know, looked at variations of it, just in case a small preposition or something changed within, and scanned through, you know, New York Times bestsellers, Nobel Prize winners, uh, novels from 100 years ago, novels from today, to see How many cliches, on average, does each author use?
1: And who was the worst offender? Who used it more often than anyone?
3: So the worst offender is an author who is also uh, widely considered to be the most sold author year after year, and that's James Patterson. Uh, And I believe, seeing these numbers off the top of my head, he uses about two to three times as many cliches per 100,000 words than you may find in a you know a book by a Pulitzer Prize winner or something on the literary list of the New York Times or anything like that. Um, and you know everyone does use cliches, and I think sometimes they do. You know, using a cliche is not necessarily a bad thing; it can give you insight into characters or the way people talk in a region or things like that. But there are some authors who kind of clearly shy away from them, and some who kind of say this is actually how people talk to communicate. I'm gonna go all in on them. And James Patterson was number one,
1: for and that. the best at avoiding them. Do you remember? Do you know who that was?
3: Uh, I you might actually have to refresh my memory. I, I think it's Jane Austen.
1: I think it was Jane Austen who was the uh, I, I th- the least using of cliches.
3: I think that is right. I think there was a bit of a there was a bit of a historical precedence where cliches, because the list was compiled more recently. Newer authors are on it, but even if you compare again, you know, author like James Patterson to his his peers on the New York Times bestseller list or things like that, he's kind of had his shoulders above them. And Jane Jane Austen, for people who kind of love her, can take a bit of uh, enjoyment in the fact that she probably, for better, placed last on this list.
1: So the stuff that we just talked about, which is very interesting for any of us who have ever read, and that's I'm hoping most people have read something that is just you know okay, the authors, but. Some of that stuff doesn't really apply to us. Now, for those people who write stories like me for newspapers or you who write papers or folks who write papers for in their office or reports or whatever else, there's also some stuff in here that I found really interesting that it's applicable to anybody, really. And one of the spots is you talked about it a second ago, uh, you looked at adverbs and adverbs are one of those words. You talked about Stephen King saying, don't use the L Y words. Uh, some people, some really good writers say, avoid them. I was going to say, avoid them like the plague, but that would have put me on the list of using the cliche. So I won't say that. Um, but some people will say, don't use adverbs at all. Others are less bothered by them. Um, why did first of all? Why did you look at the adverb thing? Was that just something that jumped out from what Stephen King said, or was that something beforehand that you were already thinking about?
3: So that's something that I think I had first heard this when I was back in school, and a creative writing teacher had told me this, um, and I had heard it time and time again. Stephen King uh, had written about it, and that was probably when I wrote when I had read that initially. You know, years before I did this book, that really stuck with me. But other authors like Chuck Palahniuk and Toni Morrison. And uh, just a lot of kind of writing guys kind of have avoid unnecessary adverbs as a rule, kind of with a thought process that writing should be concise. Mm. Um, and in most cases, an adverb, specifically an L-Y adverb, can be removed either altogether or gotten rid of and replaced with a better verb.
1: And you found in this, and I find this fascinating, again, as a as a point of note to people who write, or if you've got kids who write, or grandchildren who write, or whatever, to pass along you found that the books that have been over year, over history defined as great books had vastly fewer adverbs in them than the books that are just the, you know, the pulpy stuff that just rolls off. That there really is a connection here between, maybe not directly, but between great writers and a, ch- a very few, a selective use of adverbs.
3: Yeah, you know, I didn't know what I was going to find when I did this specific experiment and maybe even deep down a part of me kind of wanted it to be kind of the opposite because it would have been kind of interesting that this advice that you've heard time and time again is kind of junk. But, you know, if you look at, you know, an author like Hemingway or Faulkner, you know, specifically Hemingway is known to be concise. The books that are kind of his most taught and most read over the years are really the most concise ones, and the same goes for Faulkner and Toni Morrison uh, and John Updick and Kurt Vonnegut and all these great authors. And as you said, I don't think, you know we'd be kind of kidding ourselves if we said, if you just put in a few more uh, y- L.Y. adverbs as The Great Gatsby, it wouldn't be a great book. <laughs> we took out L.Y. adverbs out of a, you know, a book that's forgotten, it would become a great book. I think more along the lines of an author, when they're being concise, when they're editing their own work, when they have a good editor helping them, and the language is clear and precise, and the story is clear and precise, those are kind of the books that are durable over time as opposed to the books that kind of dawdle around allow- double around and rely on kind of fluffy language. Uh, but yeah, definitely in your own writing, if you're writing a novel or creative fiction, I think both the numbers and traditional creative writing advice say don't use an L-Y adverb. Um, I had a friend who read this book and told me he stopped using L-Y adverbs in text messages, just to uh, friends and family, and I told him that was probably a step too far. Uh, but I think it is a general good rule. If you are trying to write concisely, uh, you know, don't say concisely. Just take out the L-Y adverbs altogether.
1: We only have time for one more. There's a lot of great stuff in here, but one more. And this is, a, this is a bugaboo of mine. I don't know about you. I don't know if this is something that drives you nuts or not. Exclamation points, because usually when they're used, they are misused wildly, I think. And I hate exclamation points. Nonetheless, I was shocked when I saw your list of the top five authors who use exclamation points. J.R.R. Tolkien, E.B. White from Charlotte's Web and others, Sinclair Lewis, Tom Wolfe, and James Joyce. These aren't hacks. And these are guys who are using exclamation marks when everyone is saying, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that.
3: No, you know, it is interesting, especially a few authors like James Joyce. you kind of picture, his kind of experimental language, it would kind of make sense in some ways that he is using so many of these exclamation points. Um, but then there's authors on the other side, again, like Hemingway, how concise and simple his language is. Uh, I think he's really towards the bottom of this. And the disparity is huge when an author like Hemingway is using, I believe, around like uh, like 150th the amount of an author like Tom Wolfe or James Joyce. Um, but it is very interesting. This The specific reason I looked at that example was an author named Elmore Leonard who wrote The Basis for 310 to year My Jackie Brown had said, do not use exclamation points, and he wrote that in 2000 in a New York Times article. Um, but before he had said that, he was actually using exclamation points at a pretty reliable rate. And then after he gave the advice, he stopped using them more or less altogether. Uh, so I think, once again, uh, I would definitely err on the side of if you if the exclamation point is not absolutely needed, take it out. But for those who kind of have the rule that you can never use them, uh, you know, actually look at their writing and see, you know, is the author trying to emulate actually using this advice or not?
1: The, um, the books are called, the two books that you've got out there right now, this one is Nabokov's Favorite Word is Mauve. It's a great book. If you've been hearing us talk about it, if you want to find that, if you need something to read this long holiday weekend or... Uh, if you're a sports fan, if you're a baseball fan, I don't care if we never get back. Either one is well worth a read. Uh, ben, and I'm assuming both of them are available at bookstores everywhere and at Kobo and all those other places. You can get them anywhere.
3: Any bookstore on Amazon, uh, any any major bookstore.
1: Ben Blatt, really appreciate the time today. Thanks again. Really, uh, really excellent stuff.
3: was a great chat.
1: Thanks, Ben. Um, I, I really would encourage you again to go get, I don't, I don't recommend a lot of books. This is not Oprah's book club. I don't have Scott's book club here on the show. Uh, we read, we talk about books, but not every I'm telling you, if you need something light and not fluffy, it's not fluffy, but it's easy reading and it's really enjoyable. I don't care if we never get back, especially if you've ever thought of doing something as nutty. As hitting every major league ballpark in the span of thirty days and not missing a pitch in any one of the games that you're going to, think about that for a second. It's not just about how you get to into the stadium, how much baseball you're watching, how much junk food you're eating, how much driving you're doing. Think of the trying to figure out how to get from park to park in time. It's anyway. It's a great book. You're listening to the
0: Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML.
1: Let me bring in our good friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH this Evening. Sir, how are you tonight?
2: Uh, You know, not bad. I'm a busy sports day, actually.
1: It is. Well, just before we get on to the world of sports, during the uh, news break, I was on Facebook and this meme popped up and I've got to test you on this because this is the kind of important thing that really we need to know before we can get on with the business of the day. (laughs) Your stripper name, Bubba O'Neill, is the color of your underwear and the last thing you ate. What is Bubba's stripper name? Mine is Gray Ice Cream Bar. Hold
2: on, let me check here. Uh, That would be Gray Apple.
1: (laughs) I don't think anyone's paying to see us strip, I'll tell you that much. Not with those names. Lord, no. (laughs) And the names are just the beginning of our problems. (laughs) Uh, speaking of problems, there's my segue. Speaking of problems, the Hamilton Ticats played the Argos last fr- uh, Friday, last Sunday night, okay. pardon me, Sunday night at um, BMO Field. 13,583 announced attendance. I think that was probably generous. And there were four or 5,000 probably at least who were Ticat fans who came down the highway. So maybe you're talking about... 8,000, 9,000, if you're being really kind, Argo fans, out of a city of how many million for opening night against your arch rivals? I, that, that, I can't think of a worst-case scenario, honestly, for the Canadian Football League in a year when there's so many things that they should be celebrating. you got Saskatchewan opening a new stadium this weekend, a lot of good things. Toronto is this lingering cloud hanging over the league.
2: You know, I'll be honest with you, 30 minutes before kickoff, I sat in the media booth and I was going to do it and then I wasn't going to do it and I'm going to go, I'm going to do it. I actually counted how many people were on the east side stands from the media booth. I could see, you can see very, very clearly. And the fact that I could actually count 102 fans 31 minutes before kickoff, I was, I was mind blown. Now I will say this, because of the game and the way the game worked out, the eight or nine thousand Argonaut fans that were there were having a really good time. Yep. And they were they were loud. They, I mean, enough that, you know, on certain long down and distant situations for the Tiger Cats, I don't know how. I mean, obviously, from me to Booth, you can only gauge where you can gauge from there. But down low, I, it might have been a little difficult for Caleros to communicate with his wide receivers because they were, they were boisterous. And I kept thinking, if this place was full, to what we saw last night, say, for, for the yes. Toronto Impact and TFC game, where the 26,000 people What an entertaining product this would be for the Toronto Argonauts. But for whatever reason, there's a malaise around this team. Uh, And I'll be honest, they missed a great game. A Hall of Fame quarterback threw for over 500 yards. S.J. Green, you know, had an outstanding game with some magical catches. And the new era, at least in terms of the head coach and general manager, got off to a very good start. So perhaps maybe if they continue to win, people will come.
1: Yeah, but okay, and, and and I hope you're right. I hope that optimism is well-placed, but here's the problem. If you take away the four or 5,000 Cat fans who are there, and you don't have the rival there, and you don't have opening night when there should have been. I mean, opening night is always supposed to be the night when you get the most number of people, and now it's less than a week later, and it's the Canada Day long weekend, which may or may not be an advantage. It may be a disadvantage, I can't even fathom, Bubba, what the crowd could, and I use the word crowd in quotes, could look like this Friday night.
2: Well, I mean, and you're right about that. I mean, there were times last year, Scott, I mean, the games I was there, people that I talked to, that there was well under 10,000 people. Under 10,000 people at that facility last year. Let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. Again, there was a bad team last year. Yes. So... Again, hopefully maybe wins and losses dictate.
1: Well, let me tell you this, because before I came into the studio today, I went on Ticketmaster. And at first I was asking for two tickets. I'm not actually going. I can't go on Friday, but I was checking it out. So I went on for two tickets. I could have today, a day and a half before the, well, two days almost, before kickoff, I could have bought a pair on either side of the bleachers at the 55-yard line. One side was row three. One was the front row. That's two days before kickoff on a Friday night. Now, I said, okay, that's bad, but now I'm going to really test it. So I set the thing to get the maximum number of tickets in a row that I could possibly get, and they allow you to buy up to 19 on Ticketmaster. I asked for 19 tickets, best available. I could have bought 19 in a row at this on the se- in the second row at midfield for Friday's game. Oh, I, there's th- and there's little evidence. That I can see that this is about to turn, and this is the problem. Is okay, Bubba? I, I, I'll I'll take your optimism, and I'll say with Ricky Ray, with Mark Tressman, with Jim Pop, with all these guys, S. J. Green building this team, that in time this thing can get turned around. How long? When does this happen? Because uh, if you're starting with a base of six or seven or ten thousand. Man, that's a long way to go. You're not starting from, we need to fill 5,000 more seats to sell it out. You're, you've got a long way to go.
2: You know, and what surprises me, too, is I, there was such, a, maybe, an opportunity to form momentum. And, I, and, I, and I, I'm sad to hear what you just said there about, you know, being able to, to, to look at Ticketmaster and basically sit wherever you want. Um, I mean, you and I listen to a lot of sports radio. Um, a lot of read a lot and coming off the momentum of such a great performance in front of your home fans I other than TSN um, promoting their own product as in like the games of the week and you know an Argonaut game on Friday and blah 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 I haven't heard an Argonaut advertisement or seen anything in the paper
1: in any of the papers that I've seen I can't recall if I I've seen recall. any of the Toronto I papers
2: I haven't heard anything on the radio And the only thing I have seen is, you know, TSN telling you to watch a game on television for their own product. So I don't know if there's a deficit there in terms of funds to be able to advertise, but if there was ever $5, if you had $5 in your bank account, this was the week to spend it, coming after, you know, a a wonderful performance, surprising maybe to some, uh, on the way they played on Sunday. And well, that worries me, Scott. This, well, this, this is... is this is a, this. They, they, there's an opportunity at a very good team there, and uh, you're right. Everywhere else, I mean, Saskatchewan, new stadium, optimism in, in Winnipeg, BC had a nice crowd for their game. Edmonton always does well. The Stampeders have a team that you know are arguably maybe the best going into the season. They they have no issues putting in thirty five thousand at at an aging McMahon Stadium. And and even our Ticats cats here. I mean, they, who you know, if you listen to, if you read everything the team says, they I don't know how many consecutive sellouts it's been, but the place is packed. There's a huge hole here in Toronto, and it, and you're right. I'm going to say five million people to draw from,
1: at least. At least, and with this game, with this last game, and I want to move on. But with this last game, it wasn't just five million because you had all of Hamilton too that was potentially coming down to watch the Ticats if you were willing to make the drive. So, the CFL, or at least CFL people, have long said we need to have a Toronto team. Do you still believe that, or do you believe that this league, if this if this team basically just wallows around in in irrelevance? can this league continue to carry, can this league continue to do well if Toronto is not a CFL hub?
2: I feel like they need, I, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm old school, maybe I'm in a trap here, but I, I feel like for it to be legitimate, for people in this side of the country where we live to take it seriously, and I'll include the Ticats in that too, uh, there, should, there needs to be a Toronto franchise. So how and and, and and it needs to work. I, I don't know. I, again, I'd be working for the CFL. Here's 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 something here's something that we're, that, that, that dazzles me. Why isn't Pinball Clements involved in 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 the CFL?
1: They do have an opening for a commissioner. But
2: why isn't he the commissioner?
1: Well, my okay. My first argument to that would be: I believe at least you know you would expect the commissioner has to have business acumen he's got to be a businessman but he also has to be the face of the league now i don't know if pinball clemens has the kind of business savvy that you would require but man oh man there is nobody that you would want to be the face of the league more maybe it's time for the league to look at splitting up this job and having a you know someone who is just looking after the business in the back room and him just out there shaking hands and being the official commissioner
2: But I agree with you. You know, I think you know as it stands right now, and what it seems to me, and I know pinball has a foundation that's been extremely successful. uh, Maybe there's a better background, business background than we than we seem to believe. Could be, could be. Uh, uh, And and on top of that, too, you're, you're totally correct on the face of the league. And, you know, I'm hearing some rumblings that maybe uh, Scott Mitchell might be in line for the job. I could be incorrect with that, but that's just something I've been hearing. And there's been some, some other names that I've been hearing that, you know, to me don't... I don't know, they don't, they're don't, they not sexy names, if you want to say. Uh, and I don't know if that's what the CFL and the Board of Governors are looking for. But this is an, incru- an incredibly crucial time for the Canadian game, and especially in Toronto. Because I... I you're right. Maybe this league can run without Toronto, but I think for it to be to be somewhat legit, the biggest city in the in the country needs to be part of it.
1: So how do you do that then? Because what we saw and you mentioned it, you referred to it last night down at BMO Field, at the same field. I think the number was twenty nine, twenty seven thousand, something like that. People and not just twenty seven thousand people, twenty seven thousand fans who were. Into the game, excited, waving flags, singing, jumping around, wearing the team
2: colors. You could Did you not, see the place when giovenco scored that winning goal. You could
1: not ask for a better environment for sports, regardless of what the sport was. It was. Yes. I would compare this, honestly. And maybe even more. I would compare this to Nashville in the Stanley Cup finals, what you saw there. It was yep. it was similar. Nashville didn't have all the flags and stuff, but that's they're not soccer. But I would say as far as a fan base who is just really latched on to a team, I thought that Nashville did that with the Predators. I think TFC has got the fan base doing that now. And here's the problem though, Bubba, is that there to me has always been the leafs at the top of the food chain in Toronto. The Jays second, the Raptors third, and then it's fighting for the scraps down below. Well, the scraps seem the battle for the scraps seem to has seems to have clearly been won by TFC, and there's only so much time and there's only so much money in your entertainment sports entertainment dollar. I don't know how the Argos crack into that now as long as TFC remains a team that is playing well and has the fans that are that interested in being that passionate.
2: I think it also helps, too, that I think they're, they're undefeated in about 10 games at home, too, so they're, they, they're playing well in front of their home crowd, too. But I mean, but I don't know how much history has to do with it, Scott, but I, I'm, I'm of, a, of an era, and I come from a time where I, you know, my first sporting experiences were from my father taking me to Toronto Argonaut Games at Exhibition Stadium. Those were my first sporting events live. I remember crisply in my mind... 48 50 uh, 55 on some occasions uh, 1000 people at, oh, at, I at, thought you were at, th- I
1: thought you were saying what years
2: <laughs> 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 I remember back in 48 when my dad told you Bubby,
1: you look great for your age I got to tell you
2: <laughs> I'm aging I'm aging rapidly but not that old but but I rem- that's in my head of how many people were there? The, the do you remember? I mean, I'm sure you remember. Grey Cup, Grey Cup winning parades down the streets of Toronto, ticker tape style. Like these guys were heroes, and I don't know what happened. I still don't know how this has happened. Oh, I, I
1: no. I, look, I really believe, and and this may. Some people are going to say this is old school. I think that the when they when the CFL went to the blackouts that did more damage that is irreparable than they could ever have fathomed because you lost a generation and you didn't just lose the generation then for that generation because then those people who no longer were CFL fans because they couldn't watch it, they didn't introduce their kids to the game and then their kids don't get introduced to the game. So what the CFL is relying on right now, especially in Toronto, to re-energize that base is grandfathers and in some cases grandmothers bringing their grandkids out. But you've skipped the generation. You need dads and moms bringing their kids there. That's how it's always worked in every and, sport.
2: And I agree with you, Scott, but that was so long ago, that blockout era. But we those are with, the we, fathers we,
1: now and the mothers I, now who would be taking their kids.
2: But we, have, we live in a society right now where there's the advertising on the Internet. Every game is telecast on, on, on TSN. I know. We, there's multiple sports networks. How can the Argos not get? I mean, they still have beat writers that I'm seeing, which is a, you know becoming a surprise to me nowadays with the Sun and the Star. Like they, they're still there, but yet no one seems to absorb it. Or and, and the funny thing is, if you look at TSN numbers, and I know that, that argument can be made that TSN you know are are not fudging numbers, but they make it look as good as possible. But people are watching the Canadian Football League on television. Why aren't they going to the stadium? I, I There are so many sports, and you've listed off tons of them. To me, going to a football game is one of the most entertaining of, of all the sports. To go. I think it's more entertaining than watching a baseball game.
1: Well, there's one other thing that goes with this, and that is that Toronto, and I'm not picking on Toronto. I grew up in Toronto. I, when I was a kid, I lived in Toronto. I don't have a, like some people around here, I don't have a full-on hatred for this everything to do with Toronto. But the one thing you can say is Toronto is kind of like New York or London in certain ways, and that is if something is hot, you want to go there and be seen there. And if it's not considered cool, it is really hard to become cool again. And the Argos are not cool. If you go to your office, Bob, if you went to the Argo game and you lived in Toronto, and then the next day you said, oh, man, I was at the game last night. And they said, which game? He said, the Argos. They're like, seriously, dude, you went to the Argos? Like, that's a hard thing to change, to make yourself become the cool show in town. And that's what they need to have in Toronto.
2: There's no professional football other than the CFL played in the city.
1: I know. And And the
2: NFL is not coming anytime soon.
1: And the CIS gets no traction in Toronto. Or U Sports now. College football in Canada gets no traction. U of T once was a powerhouse. Now it's, I don't want to say it's a joke, but it's irrelevant. The two teams, York as well. You're not wrong. I just, as I say, I, the thing to me that is worrisome is that some people can listen to this, if you're a CFL fan or not, and say, who cares about Toronto? Like, we've got all, as I say, you mentioned, we've got all the teams out west that are doing okay, and Montreal's okay, and Ottawa's really excelling right now, and Hamilton's doing fine. But whether we like it or not, Hamilton is the fulcrum on the seesaw. Toronto is the fulcrum on the seesaw. It, I agree with you. It needs to be not necessarily winning, but it needs needs to be relevant. It needs to be a factor in the league, and it's just so not right now. It really isn't.
2: You know, I, I forgot about this. I mean, this is a team we haven't even talked about, Scott. They're putting in good crowds to, in that rugby league for the new rugby team. There's a well, and, it, and, 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 and you talk about El Culo. That, that's apparently been a cool. That's a cool sport right now gaining traction, and you know, they've got a professional rugby team you know, with quality players that have come over from the UK, and Lamport Stadium is apparently a fun place to watch a game.
1: What do you think would happen if Toronto ever got a professional, of some level, cricket team? Uh, Again, but all these things, we've got to go, but all these things are just more competition for your eyeballs because there's only so much TV you can watch and so and and competition for your dollar that you're going to spend going somewhere and it's just it it, it just seems to me like it, it's a depressing look right now because there's so many other things about the league that are so upbeat and then you look at the stands I tuned in about 5 minutes after 4 on Sunday and it was just when the national anthem was going and as the TV came on I was looking from the camera angle, the same thing you were looking at, and I honestly thought this must have been taped two hours before the game because <laughs> the whole, you could see the white maple leaf in the red seats. There was not enough people to obscure that. No. It no. was horrible. It again, was horrible.
2: It, 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 it was a shock to me. And, like, again, Scott, I mean, we've gone through a million excuses. We've gone through, we've analyzed this from top to bottom. But at the end of the day, I find it hard to believe that in a drawing area, of, over 5 million people, you can't get twenty-one to 25,000 out of 5 million to watch a football game. It is mind-blowing to me. Somebody's not doing something right.
1: Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, you can watch him tonight at 11, at 11.15, doing the weather, 11.10, I don't know, 11.30, doing sports. You can watch him all night. Just tune in to CHCH. Bubba, thanks for doing this.
2: Always a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Uh
1: what do you think the over-under is on the Argo game this Friday night with BC? I'm not saying what will they be announcing, and there's no way to find out, but it would if they were under 10,000, would it shock anybody? Hope not. I mean, I really hope not. But it wouldn't shock me. Which is bad. I mean, it's it, you can hate Toronto all you want. That is bad. If you believe... That, the, that Canada is better for having its own professional football league, and many people do. That it's part of our culture, it's part of who we are, it's it's a good thing to have. If you believe that, it is bad if Toronto can't draw more than 10 or 12 or 15,000 people for a football game. That's, that's pretty rough.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML.
1: Canada, we got Canada's 150th birthday coming up this weekend. Canada Day, of course, is Saturday. And while we are divided, while we're separated by a border, which really is nothing, it's just an imaginary line, there are great differences once you cross that border. Before we get to them, though, here's what has always struck me about that border. You can be in Canada, driving towards the States, you're in Canada, in Canada, in Canada, in Canada, everything's the same. You cross that border and suddenly everyone is talking buffaloese. It's like you hit the line and suddenly they talk buffalo and I can't do a good buffalo accent. North Tanoanda. You know, I don't understand how one imaginary line changes everything, but the second you cross that line, you know immediately that you're talking to someone from Buffalo. And that was again a really terrible attempt at doing the Buffalo accent. You know what I'm talking about. If you've ever heard someone from Buffalo with the full on Buffalonian accent, you know what I'm talking about. And it's see the thing is, wouldn't it wouldn't it make a lot more sense if you had the Buffalo accent in Buffalo and you had the South Southern Ontario accent in Southern Ontario, but in the middle there, closer to the border, there would be a bit of a crossover, so there would gradually Move from one to no, it's like you hit the line and boom, you get the first person you talk to, the first border guard suddenly has the buffalo accent and it's immediate from there. Anyway, I that that has always caught me off guard. Why, why does that imaginary line change everything? Well, it changes other things too. Will's going to jump in here because there are a bunch of things, words we use in Canada. And maybe now with the internet and with more, you know, a smaller world, maybe they get some of the things, but by and large, these are words they don't use in the States and they give you that, huh? Look when you use this because they don't get it. For example, we use the word, this is not in here, but Chesterfield, right? They'll call it sofa. We use Chesterfield. But anyway, number one on the list, that's that's an, that's an extra throw in. Number one on the list, word they don't use in the States, at least not much. We use it up here all the time, especially in this city. Well, maybe you don't, but when you go to Tim Hortons, how do you order your coffee? What do you ask for? What would Canadians ask for often?
4: Uh, A double-double.
1: Double-double. Not an American term. You go down to the States and out of context, if you're not at Dunkin' Donuts or Krispy Kreme or something, you just walk up to a guy in the street and say, hey, where can I get a double-double? I have no idea what they're going to think you're asking for. They're probably thinking you're going to be asking for where to find a dealer of some kind, I'm guessing. Like something to do with drugs. I don't know. But no, double-double is a Canadianism. It's really a, it's, it's more than a Tim Hortons-ism, really. I, Do you really. Does anyone go to Starbucks and order a double-double? Actually, at, because you have to use the fancy words, it would be a dopio-dopio if it was at Starbucks, which just sounds stupid, quite frankly. But anyway. I'm going to do that. A dopio-dopio?
4: Yeah, yeah.
1: Try it. See what happens. I'd love to know if they just look at you with that stink eye and go, you know, you're just making fun of us because we have to talk with these fancy words and charge you an extra 50 cents for every adjective. I tell you, I have on my phone, Will, I have on the clipboard, or the little message board there, I have the order for my wife's drink when we go to Starbucks because I cannot remember it. There are <laughs> so many words that I had to write it down once upon a time just so I can walk up to them. Where is it here? I, I, I do have it. It's a grande peppermint mocha frappuccino with nonfat milk, <laughs> sugar-free syrup, sugar-free mocha with whipped cream. How is any human supposed to remember that? But that's, you know, a double-double is, is a much better option. Number two on the list, things that Americans, words that Americans do not get. Maybe you don't even get this one. Ever had a soaker?
4: Um, I do not think so.
1: Have you ever, when you were a kid, you were walking along and you ever step into a puddle that goes above the top of your shoe? Oh, yeah, so yeah. So you get a soaker.
4: That's a soaker. That's okay, a soaker. yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I, not only Americans apparently don't understand, but yeah, a soaker is that one. Or when you're wearing cloth shoes and you step in it high enough that your foot is now soaked, right? There's a soaker. That's another term that we don't – and uh, believe me, we've anyone who – well, anyone who lives anywhere has had a soaker before, but I don't know what they call it down there. What would they call it? A, just a wet foot?
4: Yeah, that sounds about right.
1: Uh, that sounds like I, they should call it in Britain, in, in, you know, in the United Kingdom. Oh, I have a wet foot. I usually – It sounds more up to up – you know, upbeat. I yeah. have a wet foot, but here we—I got serious soaker. Serious
4: case of wet foot. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, we also some people here call it a booter. Although I've never heard of a booter. Uh, okay, here's one that again is just part of our vernacular. We use this every single day, but in the states, again, they don't know what we're talking about. We talk about loony or toony, right? And loony, I—they would, I think, have a completely different idea what loony is. Yeah, but toony isn't even a word.
4: I saw a whole discussion about this online recently where a bunch of Americans were quizzing a Canadian on a forum saying, "Wait, wait, wait, wait. Toonie's an actual thing? I thought this was a joke that you were playing on us." People posting images of the coins, yep.
1: Yeah, no, that's a, that's one that they would And again, loony in the states is like, woo Uh, but a toonie is a is a word that we've made up here and yet it's become part of our conversation. It's All a right. pun. This one's a great one now this one you wouldn't get this one around here I don't think as much but out especially on the east Coast and on the prairies if someone was really going for it they'd say I'm gonna give her oh yeah I'm gonna give her yeah uh if you ever watched uh, letter Kenny yep you will be familiar with giver
4: Yeah, and I yeah we have that around here just less prevalent
1: Nessie down in the states they have stolen from um they've stolen from the old rocky movie they go for it go for it they just go for it. Uh or what's the uh, what's the word that um who's that comedian the Larry the
3: Cable
4: guy with the get cable Her g- Done?
1: Get her Done. That's see there the get her done is the same as giver. It's that's the American version. That's what I want I was actually thinking of. Get her done. That's that's the Americanization of giver. But see, I like giver better. It has that although I really it has that Canadian sound, although I really believe that you should either have to be wearing a lumberjack jacket or a jean jacket to be able to say giver. If you're not wearing one of those, there should be some kind of fine for not fulfilling your mandated Canadianness. You've got to be wearing the Canadian tuxedo. I don't know if the Canadian tuxedo comes up a little later in this. You know what a Canadian tuxedo
4: is? Oh, yeah.
1: What's a Canadian tuxedo?
4: That's the, the full denim going all out. You're really giving her there.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You're giving her in the fashion department if you've got the Canadian tuxedo going. This one is a word, and I can vouch for this one. This is a word that causes massive confusion for Americans because if you talk about this particular word with an American and with many Canadians you have a very specific image in mind of what you're talking about so when you have a different and this is a clothing item but when you have a different clothing item for the same thing boy it gets thrown off in the states and in much many parts of Canada if you're wearing a thong You have a little piece of string cranked up in your butt cheeks that you're wearing at the beach so your buttocks are hanging out getting sunburned. Yes. That's a thong, for better or for worse. Frankly, I think you should require a license to wear a thong that you should have to be able to establish that your body is sufficiently proportioned that a thong is not going to be detrimental to the public peace. There are too many people wearing thongs who really should never be allowed to wear a thong. I'm just saying, and I, just in case anyone's thinking of being judgmental, put me right at the top of the list of people who should not be wearing a thong, all right? Like there are, there are very few people on planet earth that should be toying with the idea of slipping into one of those. And I've always wondered what, no, I'm not going to go there. I was going to say what happens when you pass wind, when you got a thong in, is it, is it buzz? But Anyway. But in Canada, we also call those sandal beach things that go between your big toe and second toe that are like rubber flip-flops, flip-flops, we also call thongs. Yeah. You imagine going down to the States and saying, do you have any thongs? Because you're looking for something for your feet and then when you, no, 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 the ones for your feet. Could you imagine the look on people's face if you, because I mentioned a thong once upon a time and I was sort of making a joke, but. They have no idea that you can get foot thongs. Can't imagine what image is going through their head. How do you wear a thong on your foot? Why would you want to? Anyway, thongs. Uh, A a Sort of a divey after-hours bar. Up in Canada, we might call them a booze can. I don't know what you call it down there, a saloon? That's kind of an old West thing with the swinging doors. But anyway.
4: Hole in the wall?
1: Hole in the wall, Maybe. Uh, what do you call a generally a senior citizen who goes south for the winter?
4: Uh, s- snowbird, no. Yep, that's right. Yeah, snowbird. That's right, snowbird.
1: Okay. Yep, uh, they don't have, that word does not exist for probably obvious reasons because half of the country or more is down south of where it snows. I mean, there are people who would still be living in Buffalo and all the places that get snow, but yeah, snowbird is a Canadianism for sure. Here's another one. Remember, we, we were just talking about giver. Uh, in again, go to the east coast, go to the prairies. You got to get out of somewhere. You got to leave. All right, you're, you're saying, okay, uh, mom, that was a delicious dinner, but we got a header. We got to head out. It's like we got to head out. We got to get going. We got a header. You ever use header? That's that's one of them. I've heard it, but I've never actually used it. It's never really caught on.
4: Yeah, no, I've never done that.
1: That that's not a um, that's not high, high, high on the list. Uh, here's another one. This one, you know what it is? Molson Muscle. You know what a Molson Muscle is?
4: Is that uh, your, your? Be careful. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm going to back off this. It's, so I'm it's back not off dirty
1: there. at all. It's not dirty at all. But I'm just guessing that when you pause, I'm thinking, oh, oh what's he going to come with? A Molson Muscle is a pot belly that you get from drinking beer. Okay. Yes. The Molson Muscle. Yes. Um. Anyway, yes. Oh, by the way, as we're doing this, uh, Jack just wrote in the Kenora Fedora. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the winter hat that has the fuzzy ear flaps that fold down over your ears? Absolutely, and with um, yeah, the Kenora fedora. I love that one. That's great. But yes, Molson Muscle is a. Uh, of course, we you know we're we're Molson. I, I don't know what they would call it—a pot belly, a beer belly. Not not nearly as fun to say spare as a Molson tire. Muscle. spare tire. Spare tire. I've
3: heard that.
1: A word here's one that we don't u- we don't use as much. Although people around here still know, it. they do not use this in the states at all. If you are on welfare, what's another way thing of saying you're on welfare? You're on pogi pogi is not an American word. And I, as I say, we don't use it as much now, but once upon a time, pogi was a, was a very common phrase for someone who was on welfare. Uh, Deek, I think Americans are starting to use deke because hockey is becoming more commonplace. Uh, here's a good one. And again, I don't know why we use this word, but Americans apparently do not understand this one at all. And it's just a fun word to say. We've been talking about yo-yo ma all day, which is fun. How about kerfuffle? Oh, I
4: love that word.
1: Kerfuffle apparently is one they don't get, which everyone knows what a kerfuffle is. I think everyone's used the word kerfuffle. If you haven't used the word kerfuffle, there's your homework assignment. Before the end of Canada Day weekend, drop kerfuffle into a sentence
4: kerfuffle might be my cinnamon word
1: that could you know and if you really want to have fun say kerfuffle fast about eight times in a row until it makes no sense to you whatsoever kerfuffle 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 you do it about eight times and now it just is like a sound it doesn't even mean anything (laughs) anymore
4: you sound like a moped
1: (laughs) or a muppet i'm not sure A, a muppet kerfuffle now say muppet kerfuffle eight times really fast uh I told you right off the bat Chesterfield, we call it a Chesterfield. They call it a sofa. If they're driving, they go miles per hour, they might say m p h although they usually just say miles per hour uh we call it a click for kilometers an hour a click they don't get if you say go forty five clicks, what in the world is that what like you're looking for you're, you're waiting to hear a sound of something Wait I didn't hear anything click no no that's that's not exactly what we're talking about. Maybe the all-time Canadian favorite one, we even named a weekend after this one, a 2-4. They do not call a 24 case a 2-4. I don't know why we call it a 2-4, I'll be honest with you. It's most of the things that you, most of the words that you change, you're, you're making it to shorten it or to make it less cumbersome to say. You're taking strain off your tongue, which is really ridiculous when you think about it. But 2-4 is not a lot easier to say than a 24. But we call it a 2-4. Americans don't have a 2-4. What else we got here? Uh, Humidex, processed cheese. They just call, I don't know, what do they call processed cheese? Cheese slices. Yeah, they would call or it singles, I think. Chocolate bar. We call it chocolate bar. They call it a candy bar. Oh, no. Oh, here's here's another good one. Underwear is underwear down there. Up here, gitch. <laughs> <laughs> you got gitch. Yeah. We got gitch, hopefully not a thong, because that's a whole different thing, but we got a git, we got gitch. Uh, what do you call a small, little, usually often a metal thing that you slide into your coat pocket that's got booze in it?
4: A flask.
1: Flask or a Mickey. Yeah. We call, we, they call it a flask, we call it a okay, Mickey. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, I got one. You got, okay, go ahead. You got a Mickey or you got a word?
4: Uh, both. No. Uh- if
1: you got a Mickey in there.
4: <laughs> uh, washroom. Versus washroom, bathroom, or restroom, or restroom. restroom. I I have I have had um, had to do some fast explaining in the states a couple times.
1: Yeah, washroom it, again. That's a weird one too, because when you it's it's when you're at home and you're bathing, that makes lots of sense. I'm going to the washroom, but if you go to a gas station t- to relieve yourself, and you say I want the washroom, if you're not familiar with that term, think of what that sounds like. Like I need to. Cleanse my body in your disgusting, urine-stained, filthy bathroom toilet area. A garburator—they call it a food processor. We call it a garburator. Eaves trough—they call it gutters. We call it eaves troughs. Again, we'll just said washroom. Knapsack—we call it a knapsack. They call it a backpack. And of course, there's a few more. Toque—we have a toque. They have a hat. But of course, the um, the all time great one. Although they've caught on to us now, because you know it's been around long enough. Zed instead of Z, and only once have I ever actually heard a Canadian DJ introducing that band from Texas, that plays Sharp Dressed Man as ZZ Top. It happened once. Anyway, there you go. So if you're talking to any Americans this Canadian long weekend, throw some of these in there. See if you can see if they can catch on. Tell them you want. A pair of thongs for your feet. See what they say. You will get great looks if you do that one. Quiz question this evening. Last chance to get into this one. What instrument does Yo-Yo Ma play? Yo-Yo Ma. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. See if you can find an answer to that one. Back after this.
0: The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.